The nail in the coffin! Welcome to the Nail in the Coffin. I'm Tom Valentino. He's Trav Shuley. And Trav, slowly but surely, we are inching our way towards uh, having some sports again. We have, we've had some UFC pay-per-views. I uh, watched a PGA Tour event over uh, the weekend on Sunday a little bit. And uh, I saw today uh, our governor here in Ohio uh, announced plans for resuming practices and contact sports starting next week. So we're starting to get some sports. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like you said, slowly but surely. I mean, golf and... Golf and NASCAR and MMA are, are, are I guess, fine for now. But um, I think until we see some of, until we see like a, a, a team sport game that actually counts for something, um, I don't know. I'm not really counting anything so far as sports being back yet. Well, good news on that front. We've got Major League Soccer coming back in early July, and on the line. We've got uh, Evan Bush, the longtime goalkeeper for the Montreal Impact. Evan, of course, is a Northeast Ohio native. He graduated from Lake Catholic High School and the University of Akron. And full disclosure, uh, growing up, he and I were neighbors. Evan, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing well, guys. How are you? Uh, fantastic. Right. We're, uh, we're excited to uh, see some sports here again. Um, but, uh, you know, before the MLS could return, you guys had to sort out some CBA issues, right? Yeah, we definitely did. It was a it was a bit of a process, and um, we can get into it a little bit more. But it was it was a process that could have potentially been averted, um, you know, if we kind of crossed our keys and dotted our eyes earlier. But uh, it was what it was, and we're through that now. Yeah, I was going to ask you. So you're the player rep for Montreal. Was this your first time going through these negotiations, or have you had to do this before? Yeah, so this was actually the third time. Um, the first time was in 2015, and I kind of got thrown into the deep end at that point. Uh, I got asked to be the player rep about two months before we were uh, set to get into negotiations. And, you know, I was never, you know, a pro-union guy by any means or anything like that, but I was told that the meetings that we're having were going to be in Las Vegas. So um, I was all about a comp trip to Las Vegas and hanging out with a bunch of my soccer buddies. So, that was kind of my initiation to it. And then the second one was actually this past off season and everything was going very smoothly. We wrapped up the negotiation before I uh, got to any type of potential uh, lockout or strike phase. Um, you know, but the, the problem was that we didn't ratify it uh, either side, you know, the, the owners didn't ratify it and the, the players association didn't ratify it um, in time. So we, we got about two months past the agreement, um, kind of doing all the legal work, the legal language getting sorted out, and then this pandemic hit and shut down all sports. So uh, the owners used that as an opportunity to open back up the CBA, which, you know, in fairness to them, it was it was there for them to do, and uh, they took advantage of it. So uh, we had to jump back into the negotiation, um, you know, once we were doing the quarantining and we were locked down from, you know, playing sports and stuff like that. So uh, I've been part of two negotiations and then, you know, this third, I guess, half negotiation, which was actually the most stressful part uh, of all of them because we were dealing with real issues in terms of losses on the league side, um, returning to play in, in formats that were unusual to everybody. So 
it was quite the process and um you know it was an interesting process to be a part of but certainly an exhausting one as a player that you know wasn't gonna necessarily reap benefits out of the negotiation if anything we were just trying to minimize our losses and um you know i, I think that you know our side we came out of it feeling relatively good in in terms of what we were able to hold on to but the fact is if we would have ratified the cba in february when it was agreed upon we would have been in a much stronger position unfortunately how were you concerned at all that you guys were not going to have a season was that on the table um you know when i look at now uh at what's going on with major league baseball you know i don't think we ever got to that point um it got to a point well I shouldn't say that. We got to a point where uh, we were being pressed on time to make our decision in returning to play for this Orlando tournament at Disney, much like the NBA is doing. And uh, Major League Soccer gave us a deadline of, I think it was a Sunday night, uh, to to agree by Monday at noon. Um, and the way they presented that to us was, was a bit callous. It was uh, – there was – not very much thought in terms of how they were treating the players and um, the the power really that the players have now in major league soccer. You know, I, I think the, a little bit of backstory on major league soccer is that it's, it's a 25 year old league. And for as long as it's been around um, it's, you know, it had a very strong control of the players. And for many years, uh, they suppressed salaries because it's a single entity. So there was never any competition for, um, you know, free agents moving to and fro and, and kind of capitalizing um, and, and driving the price of, you know, their salaries up. So they've been able to, to pretty much suppress those salaries. And as it's grown here in the last five, 10 years, the salaries have, have increased at a much higher rate than they ever had before. So now we have a lot of players in the league that are making money that, um, you know, they, they can afford to, to sit out and make decisions, you know, for, for a few months. So I think when Major League Soccer kind of gave us that ultimatum uh, a few weeks back, it offended a lot of guys to the point that they didn't feel like they had to accept what Major League Soccer had proposed. And it was a, a, a proposition from Major League Soccer that, um, you know, in all fairness, it, it, was, it was a non-starter. It, it, was, it would have given them a force majeure clause that would essentially, you know, lock us out. Um, and open up the CBA in January if if things were even remotely close to what they are now with this pandemic. And I don't know what you guys think, but I, I you know the numbers don't seem to be going in the right direction with things opening back up in the states. So um, that was a big concern for us that they would have that ability and power. Um, so when we were coming down to you know the last couple of days and they were giving us this deadline, there was still a lot of things that Major League Soccer thought that they could you know take advantage of the players on and. We stood strong. Um, you know, we we said we're not taking this deal, and then they kept pushing back their deadline. You know, it's uh, Tuesday and then to Wednesday and to Thursday, um, and, and ultimately they gave in to what our force majeure language was, um, and they conceded that they they said that they caved on that, and it was a big win for us. Uh, but I, I think in the end, you know, all the players were were just as excited and eager to get back to playing because that's what players do and. You can see that in Major League Baseball now where, you know, a lot of the players are, are putting up a fight and, you know, it looks different when you're talking about guys making 10, 15, 20, 30 million dollars 
complaining about, you know, getting prorated salaries, but, you know, the fact is that these guys still want to play, play ball. And, you know, I think that the last couple of weeks they've been talking a lot about just give us a schedule, give us a schedule We're we're ready to play. And uh, I think they're trying to call out the owners a little bit on their bluff. Yeah. Baseball has been a mess. You know, it seems like every time they start to get close to figuring this thing out, uh, one side or the other takes another step that, you know, all of a sudden puts things back at square one and it was going to be a 50 game schedule and it was going to be 70 and now and then 60 and all these numbers are getting thrown around. Um, the NBA seems to pretty much have its plan in place. Um, you know, in terms of what they want to do coming back uh, down in Florida, although, you know, some of the players since that deal was agreed upon, you know, they, they've started expressing some other concerns. I guess football still got a little bit of time before they got to start making some real tough decisions I know the situation's different for every league, but how much attention are you paying to what is happening with those other leagues? And does that shape your discussions at all that you guys were having? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think the deadline that MLS imposed on us was a direct reflection of Disney's conversations and discussions with the NBA. Um, As a matter of fact, the, the property that Major League Soccer was supposed to initially be in uh, we had to actually move our where we're going to be now because the NBA is now going to be in the property that we were initially supposed to be in. So I think that Disney was pressing MLS a little bit. Um, and obviously MLS doesn't have the clout to you know, stand up to Disney and ESPN and, and say, well, well, no, we need this and we need this and, and so on and so forth. Whereas the NBA can a little bit more. Um, so we've we've been mostly paying attention probably to what the NBA has been doing just because they're going to be in Orlando at a similar time period as we will be, um, at least in theory. I guess there's still some question marks from, from certain guys in the NBA on that. But, uh, you know, I think the interesting part, you know, to, to see both sides and see what's happening now in the media with different guys coming out and, you know, having different issues with what's going to, you know, be with this bubble and, what they're going to be able to do in Orlando. These are all things that we had internal discussions about as a player pool, you know, five, six weeks ago, you know, what's this bubble going to look like? What are we able to do? Oh, we're not allowed to leave the bubble. That's, that's going to be a bit restrictive. And then you start talking about not only the, you know, the boredom and stuff like that, but there's some real mental health issues that, you know, that guys are going to have to deal with over the course of, uh, you know, for our, in our case, it's, you know, anywhere from three to seven weeks, the NBA is much longer. And, you know, I, I think it'd be naive to think that, you know, one, the mental health issues of being, you know, isolated and alone, you know, away from family members. Um, there was a, an article from one of the the main Yahoo soccer writers, I think it was two days ago, talking about the idea of being celibate for seven weeks. And those are things that, you know, publicly it's kind of weird to talk about, but yeah, it's a big issue. I think it'd be even more naive to think that there's not, you know, other guys in in Major League Soccer, the NBA, whatever sport it is, you know, being in these bubbles that don't have other vices. You know, there's, I'm sure there's alcoholics, there's there's drug abusers. Um, you know, if they're locked in a bubble, these things can be, you know, magnified even more, and then there, there's potential to have even more issues. So. You know, all these things that the NBA is talking about or you hear, you know, different, you know, talking heads on the radio talk about with 
what the NBA is going through now, you know, we've had those conversations internally with MLS over the past four to six weeks. So it's certainly interesting to hear the public's uh, opinion on these things now that, you know, the NBA is obviously drawing uh, or casting a, a wider net of, you know, attention on it. How do you feel personally about where MLS settled on all this? Because you guys are going to play this tournament uh, down there in Florida, but then after that, you've got to come back and start playing matches in your home stadiums, right? Yeah, that's the idea. Um, you know, I think all along, you know, I, I tried to take a rational viewpoint to it and say, you know, this this scenario, this environment that we're in right now is, is far from ideal. We're not going to be playing games this year in front of, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 people yeah, as as we've become accustomed to. That level of excitement and energy and normalcy that we've built up and the league has, you know, turned itself into, it's not going to be that this year. So let's stop talking about it and try to figure out what the next solution is. And I always thought all along that MLS could use this as an opportunity to build their brand as opposed to, you know, incur these massive losses, which they're definitely going to incur massive losses, but they, they can also use it as, as a way to, to get on national TV, uh, be the first team sport back on TV where you're going to gain viewers that otherwise, you know, probably weren't paying attention. Um, we're going to be playing games at 9 a.m. in Orlando, which is, you know, for a professional athlete who, who has your body clock tuned into a, you know, a certain way, that's going to be a huge, um, you know, adjustment, maybe even a disadvantage, uh, you know, but I think that there's a lot of advantages in terms of, you know, getting on TV and being, you know, seen uh, by eyeballs that otherwise wouldn't be paying attention. So um, there, there's that aspect. And then, you know, when we come back from Orlando, my understanding is there's going to be a two or three week period where um, you kind of get settled again, no games. And uh, I think we're going to try to do a 16 game season, eight home, eight away. I would assume closed door games, no fans. Um, you know, I guess some of that depends on the different markets and stuff like that. You know, what's available, what's open. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many unknowns that you know, I think it was important for for us to to kind of lock into something quickly. So in the event there is a second wave that shuts down, you know, different parts of the country or countries. Um, you know, we we at least got something out of the season and we were on TV and we, we didn't lose relevance for, you know, 18 months. You know, we, we put ourselves in a position where we're, we're able to be seen at least uh, through the summer months a little bit. Those 9 a.m. games are going to be uh, tough for your body clock. They're also going to be a threat to my workday productivity, if I'm being honest here. <laughs> um so yeah, the, uh, this tournament here is going to start, I believe, July eighth. Uh, we were talking a little bit uh, before we started recording here. You guys haven't gotten a finalized schedule, but uh, the, the format um, seems like it's kind of similar to how a World Cup would would work in terms of you guys are all going to be in uh, groups, and uh, then from there, what about sixteen teams are going to go to a a knockout stage and play like a traditional tournament format? Is that right? Yeah, so, you know, they, one of the main things for the players was that if we're going to do this tournament, there has to be some incentive to doing it. Not only a financial incentive, but a competitive incentive where, 
you know, we're not just going down there and playing, you know, three to seven games and, you know, calling it a day. There has to be some reason to be playing these games. So, uh, like you said, it's a World Cup format. You know, I think MLS, you know, did it that way intentionally because the World Cup captures the attention of, you know, a, a much bigger market than just regular season games would. So, uh, there, there's a little bit more interest in following, a, you know, a six-week tournament than there would be seeing how these games line up in a regular season standing. Uh, that being said, the first three games, so each team's group games, will count towards their regular season standings in the league. So we've already played two games to start the year um, before the lockdown started. So that that'll put us at five games total, and then the round of 16 and beyond will not count towards the regular season standings. Um, you know, I think there'll be incentives in terms of financial, uh, bonuses and stuff like that for advancing per round. Uh, but it, it would have been impossible to put those games as regular season games, given the fact that, you know, some teams will be playing far less games than other teams. So, um, it, it's an interesting setup. Um, you know, like I said before, it's far from ideal, but it gives the players and the fans a little bit more interest in, in what's going on from the first game. Do you see something like this? So this tournament, it sounds like it, like Tino just said, it sounds a lot like it's supposed to, I don't know if it's supposed to mirror the World Cup, but it seems pretty similar to it. Do you see something like this becoming more of like a fixture, um, like more of a permanent thing if the response is really positive and all that? Um, not necessarily. You know, in soccer, it's much different than other sports where in all the big leagues around the world, you have, just the, the regular season and our regular season is already structured differently than, than the, the leagues in Europe, given the fact that we try to fit into the North American model of, you know, conferences and divisions and stuff like that. So it's already a little bit different um, in terms of having like a, a mid season tournament. I don't think they'll do that just because we already have uh, what's called in, in the U S it's called the U S open cup, which lets any team of any level, start and have the ability to win it so you can have a team in concord ohio uh go through a qualifying round um you know beat some lower level teams uh play some lower level professional teams and then ultimately start playing major league soccer teams and they could win the tournament um all the way from the bottom going up and that that mirrors what goes on in every other country every other continent around the world in terms of soccer so i think if anything maybe uh, Major League Soccer will see if this is, you know, something that a lot of people have interest in this tournament this summer, maybe that'll open themselves up to marketing that U.S. Open Cup a little bit more. Um, but in, in terms of putting extra games into the to mid midseason schedule, I'd be very surprised if, if that's something that they would find interest in. It's interesting that you mentioned that MLS has tried to structure its season to kind of follow the pattern set by most of the North American sports leagues, whereas at the same time, the NBA, you know, I don't think it's eminent, but it's certainly been discussed in the last couple of years trying to create some sort of a midseason tournament to uh, maybe model itself after um, sports that are uh, going on uh, overseas. So uh, everybody, you know, all trying to mix it up, and, and then you get this crazy thing with the, the COVID-19 pandemic um, just 
you know, really bringing everything to a halt. But uh, I don't know. I personally, I'm looking forward to it for one year. I, I know it's going to be a challenge for you guys. And, you know, I hope they do a good job keeping everybody safe down there. But uh, given the circumstances, it feels like uh, something that could be fun just to uh, put the wheels in motion and, and get some things going here. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I'm very intrigued to see what kind of permanent changes come from this. Um, kind of like the one that you, you guys were just referencing mm-hmm. that Major League Soccer could potentially turn into a permanent thing. And, you know, I, I think for many years, people have suggested that uh, the NBA pushes the start of their season back so they're not competing with the NFL. I think that's a good decision. Um, and then, you know, the other side of it, I mean, baseball, I used to love watching Indians games growing up. And I would watch 150 games a year out of the 162. I can't tell you, maybe besides you, Tommy, um, <laughs> I can't tell you anybody that watches 162 games anymore or, or even pays attention, you know, unless it's, uh, you know, a team in the pennant race all year. I just feel like there's way too many games and maybe this uh, minimized season will um, shed some light on how they could change that a little bit and bring a little bit more interest. Uh, but, you know, those are all things that uh, the bottom line will dictate for all of these leagues, I'm sure. I can tell you parenthood has mixed uh, any hopes I've had for watching that many games uh, these days, which I'm sure is something you can relate to as well. Um, yeah. I will say, though, this past weekend was the first time I was really sitting back saying, like, man, you know, I, Sunday afternoon, I really wish I could be watching an Indians game right now. I think it was like the first time this entire season where it, it really hit me that we're without baseball. But uh, uh, be that as it may, here we are. I'm, I'm kind of curious, though, so – did you did you guys get a couple matches in before the shutdown? Because like it sounded like MLS had just started its season and then things came to a screeching halt. Yeah, we did. So, so the the tournament that I mentioned earlier, the U.S. Open Cup uh, in Canada, we have what's called the Canadian Cup, and we had won the Canadian Cup last year, which put us into the Champions League, which is a regional tournament of the winners of each of these um, you know country tournaments. So. We were playing the winners of the U.S. Open Cup and the Central American countries, the winners of those countries. Uh, Mexico had a few teams in the tournament. Um, so we had already played two games against a team from Costa Rica, so one in Costa Rica, one in Montreal. Uh, we had played a game against a Honduran team. Um, so they came to Montreal, and then we were supposed to play the second leg in Honduras the week after the, the shutdown started. And then we had also played two league games. So we had already played five games uh, total, uh, but only two within the league. And, you know, I think the funny thing is uh, we were in Dallas for a game. We had chartered down there, and we were chartering back that night up to Montreal. And um, in the Dallas locker room, they had a huge, um, huge, like, tub of these Lysol wipes. And it was right around when the COVID stuff was really starting to, to kick in. I think Rudy Gobert had his incident like that day uh, with the microphones. And so I took the the tub of Lysol wipes and brought it onto the plane and started wiping down like my area. And all the guys were kind of laughing at me saying, oh, man, come on, like you're crazy. And then, you know, little did they know, three days later, the whole world shuts down. So I'd like to think that I got out in front of it a little bit. Uh, but yeah, that was the Dallas uh, away was our last game that we played. And that was, I guess, uh, middle of March, maybe, maybe yeah. a little earlier than that. I'm pretty sure Dallas was where the last NBA game was still going on when, uh, when the yeah. shutdown happened. So, um, so, all right, things stop. 
in March. What have you been able to do or how much have you been able to do to keep yourself in shape and train and, and try to stay as sharp as you can? In the meantime, that's a pretty long layoff. Yeah, man, it was, it was tough to be honest with you. Um, you know, for, for many reasons, you know, I, I think the biggest reason is that if it was a normal off season and you say that you have three months that you have to, to stay fit or, you know, get back into shape, whatever, uh, it's not so bad because you have access to gyms, you have access to trainers, you can uh, go do your sport-specific training uh, with a teammate or someone else that, you know, plays a sport or whatever. That was all shut down. So we couldn't go to, you know, public parks even to, to pass a ball. I certainly couldn't do any goalkeeper training. Um, I couldn't go to the gym. So anything that we were doing was essentially bodyweight workouts, um, our club was generous enough to bring stationary bikes to each of our houses. So we at least had something like that to, um, to use in our basement, I guess. Uh, and for the first, I'd say, month and a half of the lockdown, it was still like pretty freaking cold in Montreal. So even if I wanted to go for a run outside, it, was, it wasn't like when I was living in Miami and uh, L.A. I mean, I'm watching some of these guys, you know, in our league on their social media, and they're, they're working out outside, and it was – 85 90 degrees outside already and i'm sitting up here in montreal and it's like 35 and like i don't want to go outside so you know i had to be a bit creative work around all my kids toys in the basement um you know but at the same time i wanted to use it as a situation where i could make myself stronger both physically and mentally so i started doing double sessions um you know one early morning workout one afternoon workout and um, it kind of offset what I was doing in the kitchen and, and visiting the pantry, you know, 45 times a day. <laughs> um, if if uh, you've been able to keep in touch with your teammates at all or anything, uh, you know, strategy wise, I, I just, I think about like, you know, what the Browns have had to go through. I mean, they've got a whole new coaching staff this off season and any sort of contact between the coaches and the players has been minimal. I, I don't think you guys are, in that situation per se, but you know, if you're not getting together with your club that, you know, I got to imagine is going to create a whole list of challenges uh, as well. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, there was a lot of clubs around our league that were doing zoom calls, you know, multiple times a week. Our club was not really doing that a whole lot. And soccer is a lot different than football and football. Everything is scripted out and you have to have a deep understanding of the playbook. Soccer is, far different you know it's a lot of you know you have to know what the structure of your team is for sure and how you want to play but those are things that unless you're you know moving on a field you know you're not going to get much out of doing you know tactical sessions on a, a zoom call or uh, looking at diagrams and stuff like that so um, uh, in terms of communication with the coaching staff it was, it was pretty minimal especially for the first I'd say eight to ten weeks um, but in terms of communicating with my teammates, it was almost a daily occurrence, especially once we started talking about salary adjustments. You wouldn't believe how many people come out of the woodwork with opinions once you start talking about salary adjustments. So um, there was a lot of those communications, but not necessarily in terms of uh, strategy and stuff like that. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so as, uh, as you guys get ready to roll here, how are you feeling about your club this season? Uh, you know, I think every team at the start of the season feels good about themselves. Um, you know, what was the line? Was it Mike Tyson? Everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. And 
<laughs> I think that that's pretty accurate. You know, I think that we have a a largely young team. Uh, I think I'm the second oldest guy on the team at 34, and uh, a lot of our guys are under 25, and that's the way that our club has chosen to build over the last, I'd say, six to eight months. Um, so it'll be interesting. We have a, a coach that, you know, is very knowledgeable. He's he's a big-time guy in, in the game of soccer globally. Um, so he's got a lot to bring, but he's also – you know, relatively new in his role as a head coach too. So, um, you know, it'd be interesting, but, you know, we're excited. Uh, obviously it's, it's not going to be a normal season. So uh, I'm not sure how much we can take from, you know, what we had established as, as who we are and what we wanted to be in the first couple of months. But, you know, we, we're, we're hoping to see what's going to happen and we're, we're ready to go. Having grown up with you, it is weird to think that you're uh, one of the old guys around the league. It makes me feel old as well. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was actually thinking um, uh, a bit about the time growing up in our neighborhood and, uh, you know, the things, you know, simple things like, you know, coming over to your driveway to, to shoot hoops and play basketball or, or jump in your pool, you know. We were more <laughs> than neighbors. We were We were literally connected by a backyard, so there was a lot of times and, um, you know, I was, I was really good friends with your sister growing up and we certainly spend a lot of time together. So, uh, sure. a lot of good memories growing up in that neighborhood. Yeah. I can remember like, uh, you know, I, I was probably about 10 or 12 and we played some of those football games in the backyard, uh, over at the Morgan's house. And that would have made you about what, six or seven at that point. And you more than held your own with us. So it should have been a, a pretty telling sign that like, well, there's one guy here who's got a future in professional athletics. It's, it's not me. <laughs> it's not the Morgan boys. <laughs> the first time I ever broke my nose was playing uh, football in the, to get the name of the family now. Um, but yeah, I, I broke my nose for the first time in our neighborhood playing backyard football, and the, the blood dripped all the way down our street into into my house. And my mom, I thought you would have thought that I died with the way that she screamed when I walked in that house. <laughs> we were preparing you for big things. It, it all worked yeah. out. <laughs> Trav, you uh, you have one more question too. So yeah, I got a question. Um, I lived in Columbus for the last three or so years, and it seems to me like what happened with the crew, like it sounded like they were going to leave and then somehow, and I don't know if this is really how it went down, but people in Columbus seem to think that they saved the crew and kept them there. Um, as, as sort of an, an outside observer, obviously, I don't know that you had too much stock in where that team was based, but um, as you guys are, are watching that sort of unfold, what, what did, how did that look like from a, you know, the players from a different organization, but still obviously paying pretty close attention to what happens in the league um did it was it sort of a, a hot button issue at all that you guys were interested in and was were you guys surprised that the crew did end up staying you know I think that I had an elevated interest level in that just because of where I'm from uh the crew was the first team that I saw playing MLS when they were playing back at the horseshoe back in man, 96 maybe 97 like really really early in uh you know the first years of MLS so I always had a, a bit of interest in what was going on there and probably even more so because, you know, as, as my career um, starts to wind down here, uh, my ideal situation would be to stay in the sport um, in, in some sort of uh, coaching or management position and, um, you know, be closer to Ohio. So 
the more options in Ohio for that to, to, you know, be the case, then the better. And Columbus would be an ideal situation to, to find myself in. Um, you know, that being said, uh, not many guys around the league probably care for going to Columbus <laughs> and playing in Columbus. It's not exactly like, you know, going to New York or Miami or LA. Um, you know, but I always love going to Columbus. It's always the game that I ask every other guy for their tickets for that game. So, you know, I could have family and friends come and, and see them for a little bit because I don't get to see them very much. So I, I think, you know, the, the public perception that, you know, the fans saved the crew is, is probably relatively accurate, actually. You know, I think MLS, they rushed into thinking that Columbus couldn't support the team anymore. And that was probably with good reason because the fan support in terms of attendance down there hasn't been great. Um, they've probably filled up, you know, 50% of the stadium for a number of years now. Uh, but they also haven't been given really a chance to succeed, I don't think, in the last five to ten years in terms of whether the stadium's located, the the quality of the stadium compared to other stadiums in MLS. Um, so, you know, I understood that stuff. Um, I don't think, you know, a lot of the guys really took the time to care or understand those things. And when the fans came back and, you know, they developed the Save the Crew hashtag and um, all those things, it really did affect the way the MLS went forward with it. You know, I don't think that there was going to be the same level of trust in future investors if they let, um, you know, that type of, you know, business decision be made and, you know, to have Anthony Precourt just up and leave. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how it played out, you know, behind the scenes, you know, with the ownership groups. I know that, you know, Precourt is now in Austin and they have a team, you know, with Matthew McConaughey as a minority owner starting up next year. And now Jimmy Haslam is, you know, down there in Columbus, which is great for the crew. Uh, it's a new level of investment and interest that they're bringing to to Columbus. They're building the new stadium, um, and and the other, you know, additional piece of interest that I have now is not only is the Browns owner the owner of the crew, but also the head coach there was my coach in college for three years. So there's there's a lot of different levels um, of interest that I have there a team that you know when we're not playing them and even though they're in our conference uh you know i hope they they do well and i'll be supporting them because of the the personal relationships I, that i have there well evan if uh we ever are allowed to start going to games again uh next time uh the impact is down in columbus i'm uh, i'm throwing down the gauntlet now i'm coming down 71 and i want to see uh want to see you play i've been saying it for years that we got to make this happen here at some point and uh I don't know when. It's probably going to be a while uh, with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic happening, but uh, someday we've got to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. We'd love that. Yeah. Well, Evan, uh, going to let you run here, but uh, thanks so much for taking the time. This has been uh, really fun to catch up, and uh, good luck this year. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for us. As a reminder, you can subscribe to The Nail on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on Google Podcasts and uh, Stitcher and the TuneIn app. And, of course, you can stream us on waitingfornextyear.com. Our thanks again to Evan Bush of the Montreal Impact. That's going to do it for us. For Travis Uli, I'm Tom Valentino. It's been the nail in the coffin, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm. 
Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-back training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.